If God is able, we are able. Welcome to the One Cause Church podcast with Pastor Eric Holler. And we're going to jump in to chapter 2 tonight. Now, um, I didn't give you guys in the back um, all the scriptures, so you know how it goes. Just go along with me. All right. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 1. Let's, let's read. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, this is all good so far, isn't it? Fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not for only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. The way to flow in unity here is through humbling yourself. to the place where you look out for one another. That you never get caught up in your own interests, that you're too busy to look out for the interests of others. He says, don't look out only for your interests. You should look out for your interests. Yeah, you're responsible for your life. But not only for those, but also for the interests of others. That our lives are lived in such a wonderful way that we are contributors of God's grace and love toward one another. Now, this has all this wonderful, wonderful things to say here in these first few verses, but I'm going to go ahead and jump down into the next part of it because this all is kind of a result of the next few verses, all right? It's, it's showing us what we should look like, what our lives ought to look like, um, but it tells us how, why that, why that is a reality today and how that can be a reality because what happens starting in verse 5, okay? Now, being humbled, is, it's just really not all that fun, is it? I don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't like to be embarrassed, right? I don't, I don't like putting myself in a situation that, that makes me look bad. When I was in first grade, um, my parents moved us from southern Oklahoma to Dallas, Texas. And they enrolled in Christ for the Nations in 1976, and I started first grade that year. It was a, it was a whole different world for me, uh, a boy from southern Oklahoma, because I was only introduced to a small world there. I mean, our town had maybe a couple hundred people, all white people, <laughs> only white people. And they liked it that way. And my parents moved to Oak Cliff in 1976 and enrolled me into Mark Twain Elementary, where there were only black people. And I was the only white kid in that school, or I felt like I was. I don't remember ever knowing any other white kids in that school. So it was a, I mean, it was a shocking, it was a whole new world to me, six years old. And so I was sitting in, at breakfast one morning at the cafeteria there, and I had my breakfast tray sitting at the table, and I got up 
from the table to go back up to the front because I had forgotten my silverware. And I got up and walked to the front, got my silverware and was heading back. And I noticed a little boy named Charles had shoved my tray out of the way and sat down in my seat. The cafeteria was jam-packed with kids. So I went over to Charles and I said, Charles, that's my seat. Charles didn't give a flip (laughs) that it was my seat. And uh, he basically told me, well, too bad. And so I said, well, I need to sit there. And he said, you need to get lost. And so a struggle ensued. And as we were just beginning to make physical contact, contrary to hugs and kisses, um, I feel this hand on my shoulder, and it's the principal of the school. And in his hand is a paddle. And he grabs me and drags me out into the middle of the cafeteria, all eyes on me, and starts whipping my rear end. I mean, I'm, I'm going in a circle around this guy. He's got me, and I'm like, ah, you know, I'm going in a circle, and this, he's just following behind me. Wham, wham, wham. I'm just going to say that was a humiliating experience because Charles didn't get one lick. Kid stole my seat. It was embarrassing, and I never, ever wanted to experience anything like that. As a matter of fact, I was so scared about that event that I did not tell my parents about it. Because I'd always, I, from day one of school, my dad said, you get whipped at school, you get whipped at home. Anybody else have that rule in their house? So I didn't want that. So I didn't tell them for a long time until I was sitting in church one Sunday morning in Oklahoma. I was about nine. And man, I was so convicted about that. We were, we were having a service kind of like we were tonight, you know, just, just whatever was going on there. And I turned to my mom, tears my mom, I got to tell you something. I got whipped three years ago in school and, you know, uh, got that burden off my chest. But all I'm saying is coming to the place of humbling ourselves to esteem others better than ourselves, a lot of times is not, it, it goes against the grain. It goes against the grain of this flesh. Because this flesh has one purpose, serve yourself and serve yourself well. God did something so unconventional. We were totally powerless to achieve his holy standard. And we could never, even though uh, made in God's image, we couldn't be like him anymore. Because the sin of Adam had eternally crippled us. And God, knowing that our glaring Uh, inability to save ourselves was there. He humbled himself and became one of us. So, I mean, you've heard this story, but I want to just think about that for just a moment. What, What was life like for Jesus before he came to earth? He was the co creator with the Father and with the Holy Spirit in the very beginning. The Bible says that God said, let there be light, right? That word was who? In the beginning, John 1, 1 teaches, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God, right? The same was in the beginning with God. All right, so, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. But here he was, the Father, God, the word, and the spirit hovering over the waters. Life in heaven was, was characterized by all that was perfect and 
including this ideal relationship that they had with each other. It was one of love and true joy. It was unbroken, constant communion, constant fellowship. Jesus had this limitless existence in, with all the glory and, and privilege at his disposal. That's amazing. As a matter of fact, when Isaiah starts to describe him, one of the descriptions of him is that he is a wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father. Everlasting father. It calls Jesus the everlasting father. And I kind of wondered why did it call him the everlasting father? He's the son. He is the son. But what's kind of interesting is, is that everlasting father means, if you look it up in the original, that he is the originator of eternity. He started eternity. What was before that? There's something bigger than eternity? Yeah, God. God apparently is bigger than eternity. He started eternity. He is the originator. He's the beginning of it. Everlasting Father. And what did Jesus choose to do? He courageously chose to leave all of that because of the love that he had for us. Now let's look at verse 5. Let this mind be in you. What mind? What we just talked about. Which was also in Christ Jesus. Now watch. Who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. But made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. And at, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We see four things about Jesus here. Number one, Jesus is God. Number two, Jesus became human. Number three, Jesus is our Savior. Number three, Jesus is Lord. Look at verse six. Who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Jesus is God. See, throughout history and even now, the nature of Jesus continues to be debated. Through the years, universities and, and books and magazines and newspapers and television and the internet, all those things, Jesus is always cons considered to be one of the great religious leaders of our time or of all time, but that's usually about as high as he goes with everybody out here. Right? He's placed alongside Buddha and Confucius and Moses and Muhammad and these, these prophets. But Paul states that Jesus, by his very nature, is God. Jesus was in the form of God. I like the word form here in the Greek, that he was in the form of God. It's the word morphe, M-O-R-F-P-H-E, sorry. And it means the form by which a person or thing strikes the vision. The other definition is the external appearance. See, the Bible teaches us that God is invisible, right? He's invisible, but Jesus is the form of God. He helps us see the vision of what, he gives us a vision. He gives us something to look at concerning God. Hallelujah. He was the form, that which is essential to one's nature and character. This means that Paul understands that Jesus is the outward expression of the essence of who God is. Yeah. 
Now, look how he describes them in Colossians. Take your Bible and just run over to Colossians chapter 1 for a moment and verse 15. You guys all right? Colossians 1.15, it says this. He is the image of the invisible God. There it is. He's the form. He's what we see of the invisible God. The firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. What that says is everything is about Jesus. That's what that just said. All right? It's all about him. And he is the head of the body, the church. Wow. He made, it every, he made everything about us. He is the head of the body who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. Verse 19, for it pleased the Father that in him, that is in Jesus, all the fullness should dwell. What he said is, you see, Jesus said it, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You've seen everything you need to see. It pleased the Father that all the fullness would be in his Son. And by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Jesus is God with us. We talked about that Sunday morning. Emmanuel, God with us. He gave gave signs for those who were willing to see them. He calmed a storm and he established his power over nature. He cast out demons, demonstrating power over the spiritual realm. He healed the lame, the crippled, the blind, uh, signifying his power over disease. And he raised Lazarus from the dead, who'd been dead four days, showing that he had power even over death. Now, if that doesn't prove that he's God in the flesh, then I don't know what else to tell you. Oh, yeah, and he rose from the dead himself. See, Lazarus later died. I mean, he went back, back to that tomb later on. Jesus never revisited his tomb. His tomb's still empty today. That proves that he's God. Amen. Amen. Jesus is God. Now look at verse 7. But made himself of no reputation, taking the form. What? He was the form of God. He is the form of God. Now watch what he did. Now he takes the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of men. Takes, he's the form of God, and now he becomes, takes on the form of men. John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. When Richard Nixon was the president of the United States, he said in a speech that the greatest moment in human history was when man walked on the moon. But the great Reverend Billy Graham wouldn't let him get away with that. Billy Graham said, no, the greatest moment in history is not when man walked on the moon, but when God walked on the earth. Amen. Amen. Jesus became a man. God walked the earth. He became a man, and it was both, which was amazing. That's extraordinary, but it's also ordinary. He had no form, the Bible teaches us, nor comeliness that we would even desire him. He came as an ordinary man, but the fact that he came as a man was extraordinary. Jesus Jesus imposed limitations on his earthly appearance. He didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Think about that for a moment. For 33 years, the privileges of being God and glory were set aside, 
and he became limited by our time, by space, in the person of Jesus. God experienced flesh and bones. He suffered and he grieved. He got thirsty. He got hungry. He felt frustration and disappointment. He could no longer be everywhere at all times. Matter of fact, he looked around and said, I got to get some help. So he had to get these 12 disciples. And he even had 70 and even 500 at one point trying to get people to help other people because he was just one man at that moment. He humbled himself to just be one man. He had to have clothes to wear. If you hit him, it hurt him. If you cut him, he bled. God became a man. Don't ever discount the humility of his amazing incarnation. When we see the pictures of Christmas, it's kind of a, they're all kind of pristine, right? As cute as we try to make that whole manger scene look, it was not a cute situation, all right? There's no sweat. You don't see anybody sweating there in the manger scene, right? Clothes aren't disheveled. They're all perfect. They even got halo glows around their heads. God was born poorer than even the poor. He was laid in a feeding trough in a barn. Uh-huh. That's about as low as you can get. Amen. Right? All among the smells that come with what's in a barn. And as we know it, birth is a messy process. It's painful. And it's quite undignified. And Jesus was right there, right there in the middle of all of it. And if that's not humble enough for us to think about, the fact that he was born as a baby, but then he was born a Jew in occupied territory. (laughs) His parents lived on the backside of Galilee in a little town in obscurity called Nazareth. Matter of fact, they had a saying about Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And there he was. And he came to communicate God to people. And in so doing, he was hated by every major traditional religious authority in the earth. Betrayed by one of his closest friends, brought up on false accusations, tried before a prejudiced jury, and a cowardly judge. And if that's not humbling enough for us, He came all the way from heaven to start the process at the bottom of the order of things. Jesus was God that you could touch, feel, and hear, and see. But he didn't come to be recognized and praised. He didn't seek accolades and prestige of this world. He wasn't about self-promotion. The Bible says he made himself of no reputation. Why? Why did he go from uninterrupted, eternal fellowship with the Godhead to a stable, making a mess out of a diaper? Why would he do something like that? Jesus told Pilate in John 18, 37, we have that on some of our one-cause shirts. Anybody wearing a one-cause shirt tonight? Do you have the scripture on the back there? Does it say John 18, 37? Some of them say it, some of them don't, but that's that's why we're called One Cause Church based on that scripture. Jesus said, for this cause 
I was born. And for this cause, I have come into the world. Jesus was simply born that man no more may die. He humbled. Jesus is God. Jesus became a human. Now watch this. And Jesus is our Savior. Look at verse 8. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. I mean, he goes right to the extreme to show us his love. Matter of fact, in Mark 10, 45, he said, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Savior. I hear, I've heard people tell me this before in, in talking, about, talking about Jesus and talking about his, his power to save. And it was, and I remember being told this one time by a guy, he's like, yeah, but that's Jesus, right? Of course. Of course he could save you. Of course he could do all of those things. I mean, he was God. I mean, come on, that's kind of an unfair advantage. That he, of course he could do no sin. He was God come in the flesh. I said, who do you want to save you? I mean, if you're drowning, do you want a guy who, who's a pretty good swimmer to come out and, and get you? Or do you want a guy that you know absolutely can get the job done? What difference does that make? I mean, that's what we wanted was somebody that actually had the power to save us. Someone that would actually go through the entire process and be obedient even to death. Even the death of the cross. Hallelujah. I don't know what kind of hero you got in mind, but he's the one that I've been looking for. Now, he could have sinned, but he didn't do it. He overcame all of it. He overcame all the power of the devil. Never, never once gave in to temptation. Never once was rattled by the religious society. Never, never once. This is the kind of hero I've been looking for. One who can show me how it's done. Amen. Well, Savior, the Deliverer. I was thinking about a couple of years ago. A lot of you know what happened. Um, I was in India, actually, when this happened, my first trip there. And uh, my cousin, my mom's niece, her name was Tasha, um, we got a report that she drowned in the Red River up here between Texas and Oklahoma. And um, they, couldn't find her, they couldn't find her body for a day or so, and then they finally did. But all, all this girl's life, she had a really troubled upbringing. Her mom, had, my mom's sister, Sandy, had, had uh, been involved in drugs and all kinds of stuff. And, and so Tasha was just around just the really rough situations coming up. And um, in the environment of drugs and uh, different men being in and out of the house. Um, and we even, she even lived with us for a period of time when we were living out in West Texas. And she always had a special place in our family's heart. We always just loved her. And um, I even spent some time just ministering to her from time to time. Over the years, she would just call me and ask me to pray for her. And she always had a heart that wanted to serve God and, and, and live for him, but she was so caught up in this whirlwind lifestyle that it just, she kept getting sucked back in 
And then she would break through for a while and, you know, and uh, it was just one thing after another. And uh, she actually sat on that riverbank one time uh, and had taken an entire bottle of pills and just laid down to die. And as she's laying there, she said, I remember I, I heard the Lord speak to me clearly. And he said, get up and get to the hospital now. And she said, I mean, it was amazing. So she did. She just got up and went, and they helped her out, and she survived the event. She got sick, but she survived the event and kept going for a, for a while. And then her dad called her, and it was just about her birthday, about her 29th birthday, September the 5th. It was the day before her birthday. was September the 6th. And uh, he said, let's go out to the Red River and uh, hang out there. So she said, okay. And so she had four boys with her, four young boys with her. So they were hanging out there, and the boys got to playing around the water there. And all of them ended up in the water, as boys do. If you're going to hang around the river bank, you're going to fall in eventually if you tempt yourself long enough. The problem was there was a really strong current that they, didn't really, they couldn't really see it. And the boys started getting swept away. And so they, they couldn't fight it. And my, un- my uncle, well, he's my ex-uncle, was, was my uncle, but he, he's not a good swimmer. So Tasha, she's in roper boots, <laughs> jeans, and a heavy shirt, and she just dives in the water after him. And she can't even touch bottom. So, I mean, you can imagine... Imagine with that current having boots on and jeans and, you know, and trying to get these boys uh, help. And she can't push off the ground or anything, so she's trying her best to flow against the current. And she's, somehow she is able, one at a time, to get these boys over to the edge where my uncle was there to drag them to safety on the shore. And when he got the fourth kid out of there, he looked up and he saw her head go into water. And that was it. And the next day they found her. Found her body. And I thought about what what a redeeming thing that was for her. (laughs) For her life. As rough as it was and as tumultuous it was that in her death, something amazing happened. Four boys are alive today. You and I, you and I were swept away. We were swept away. We were swept away by the power of sin. It was dragging us off into eternal destruction. There was nothing we could do about it. And even the law came and stood on the shore and said, you need to do this and you don't need to do that. But it was powerless to save us. It told us all the right stuff, but it couldn't help us. So God said, okay, I'm going to fix this. So he got in it with us. Aren't you glad he got in it with us? Aren't you glad he got in it with us? 
and decided he was going to help us. Praise God. And Jesus Christ became our Savior. He became our Savior. He became sin, and we became the righteousness of God. He became poor, and we became rich. He became wounded, and we became healed. He became a curse, and we became blessed. He became the Son of Man so that we could become the sons of God. Aren't you grateful for our Savior today? who didn't leave us lost in that desperate situation, didn't leave us being swept away, but jumped in it with us and saved our lives. Hallelujah. And I'm grateful for a Savior today who looked for me, who found me, who saved me and delivered me out of a kingdom of darkness and brought me into a kingdom of light today. Amen. He did this. He humbled himself. God became a man. He is our Savior. Now look at this, verse 9. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. How many of you think he deserves that? Huh? Given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of the glory of God the Father. The entire world owes it to Jesus to confess him as Lord. And so whether it happens here or whether it happens on that great and final day, every knee is going to bow. Think about it. All mankind, all races, all tribes, all nations, everybody is going to hit their knee and every mouth is going to open up and say, Jesus Christ is Lord. Hallelujah. And that's why it's, it's on us to make sure that they do it here. Because you do it there, it's a little late. Right? You do it there, it's a little late. You got to do it here for it to really count. For you to enjoy what it means to be under his lordship. Hallelujah. I mean, think about the, the contrast of his incarnation and this great exaltation. He went from a birth in a smelly stable to the absolute highest place imaginable. Name above all names. Was a once a week helpless baby, but now he is the ruler and Lord of the universe. And the issue of lordship, according to this verse, is both a universal one where everybody would do it, but it's a personal one too. I want to finish with this. Speaking of the lordship of Jesus, a great old preacher by the name of D.S. Lockridge uttered these words, and you've probably heard this, but I think it's so well done. When he's describing Jesus, he says he's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. He's God's son. He's a sinner savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He stands alone in himself. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He's supreme. He's preeminent. He's the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest idea in philosophy. He's the fundamental truth in in theology. He's the miracle 
of the ages. He's the only one able to supply all of our needs simultaneously. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleanses the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges the debtors. He delivers captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the aged. He, he rewards the diligent, and he beautifies the meek. Do you know him? Well, my king is the king of all knowledge. He's the wellspring of wisdom. He's the doorway of deliverance. He's the pathway of peace. He's the roadway of righteousness. He's the highway of holiness. He's the gateway of glory. He's the master of the mighty. He's the captain of the conquerors. He's the head of the heroes. He's the leader of the legislators. He's the overseer of the overcomers. He's the governor of governors. He's the prince of all princes. He's the king of kings, and he is the Lord of all lords. His life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His word is enough. His love never changes. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. I wish I could describe him to you, but he's indescribable. Yes, he's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. The heavens cannot contain him, let alone a man explain him. You can't get him out of your mind. You can't get him off your hands. You can't outlive him and you can't live without him. Well, the Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him. And the grave couldn't hold him. Hallelujah. That's our Jesus. Jesus is Lord. Hallelujah. He is God. He became a man. He is our Savior and he is Lord today. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. All of that, all of that being said, therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, see, we all find our unity in Him. Yeah. Having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind. Let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. See, that's a lot easier understanding when we realize over and over again that He did it for us. He did it for us. And if you'll always keep your mind in that place, you'll never be able to recover from that, from that amazing grace. You'll always easily give that grace. Amen? Amen. Let's stand together. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Father, we thank you. We thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We want to invite you to join us in service Sundays at 9.30 or 11 a.m. and Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Go to onecausechurch.com for locations and events. You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at One Cause Church.